Hi, my name is Lynn McTaggart. Welcome to my podcast, Living the New Science. In these podcasts, I'm covering some extraordinary discoveries by frontier scientists and other new thought leaders and why this changes everything we think about how our world works and also how we should live our lives. Today, I'm going to share with you an amazing conversation I had with Greg Braden about the new human and the new community. For those few of you who may not know him, Greg Braden is a five-time New York Times bestselling author, scientist, international educator, and he's renowned as a pioneer in the emerging paradigm based in science, social policy, and human potential. He's also a dear friend of mine. And in this conversation, we take a deep dive into some of the reasons why we face crises on so many fronts, plus a few ideas about how to maintain resilience as we undergo these major challenges. Welcome, Greg. It's so great to have you here. Lynn, I am, I'm so excited to be with you today. It's so good to see you and, and to be with our community in the way that we are. This is completely unrehearsed, unplugged. We really don't know what's going to happen today, and that's that's what makes it especially exciting. So, so thank you. I want to thank everyone that's uh, tuning in, that's watching, for sharing part of your day with us today as well. Thank you. Thanks so much. And for those of you who don't know who I am, I am a an award-winning, internationally best-selling author. I've written seven books. Four of them have been about the science of spirituality, and I've really focused on the new science, the science of intention, of new community, and most recently, the power of eight, the power of small groups to transform and heal our lives. So we're going to start this dance by just talking about resilience. Greg, what do you mean by resilience? That's you know, Lynn, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a big topic. I remember when I was a kid growing up back in the you know, 1950s, 1960s, Resilience had a very different meaning than, uh, than it can have to us today. In those days, when you had a tough day or you're having a tough time in life, resilience meant suck it up and get over it, <laughs> pretty, pretty much. And of course, all that's changed. And a lot of that change has been pioneered through the Stockholm Resilience Institute, uh, where they have uh, developed what we now call uh, adaptive resilience. And I'm gonna contrast that to traditional resilience. So traditional resilience is when you're going along in life, everything seems okay. Life throws you a curveball, and you have to climb your way back to the top. How fast can you, can you spring back to some sense of normalcy? Adaptive resilience differs in, in the sense that it acknowledges that the world is changing. And because the world is changing, adaptive resilience says that we can take steps in our lives now so that we're already prepared for the changes, that we're already prepared for the curveballs. Uh, and they divide this, it's, it's fascinating to me, so many different ways to look at this, but there are, are different domains of resilience. And I think this is a lot of people uh, I have friends that have lost loved ones in COVID. We have friends that have lost loved ones in, um, in war. We have friends that have lost their job, their income, uh, their homes. 
And the resilience for them is, is how do I get back to this, this sense of normalcy? And while they may be able to do it emotionally, there are other domains that also need to be, to be uh, acknowledged. So when we talk about resilience, we're talking about physiological resilience. That's the, the, the state of the body so that we can host this experience in our bodies. You know, if we're not feeling good, nothing else makes any difference. But then there is mental resilience. There is psychological resilience. Uh, there is a, a spiritual resilience and there is emotional resilience. And each of these domains to, to have a, a full spectrum of healthy resilience, each of these needs to be acknowledged in, in some respect. So you mentioned the course, this is why I, I built the course the way I did. We're not advertising the course today, but, but you mentioned that. And it was the opportunity for me to develop those domains uh, in ways that, you know, we sometimes don't think about, Lynn. So does that make sense if I, if I say it that way? No, absolutely. And the big key word you used, Greg, was adaptive. I mean, the real key takeaway for us today is we're not gonna go back to normal. We're not going to go back to what it was. We've changed too much and things have gone too far. Now, I want to say from the outset, though, this is not a bad thing. This is not a terrible thing. This is a good thing. This is a, what Irvin Laszlo called a bifurcation. You know, we have a big fork in our road right now. And we can go back to the way things were sort of working, but not really or we can design something much more extraordinary, something that works for far more people and particularly for you. Because when we look back at the good old days, how good were they? And if we look at what our society was doing based on an, a misunderstanding of who we really are, a full scientific story, and Greg and I talk about that a lot, um, a story that defined us as separate individual objects, um, well-behaved objects operating through fixed laws in time and space, and also highly competitive objects that did not have enough and so had to struggle with each other to survive. And that whole leitmotif in a, in a word, in a sentence, has created the mess we're in now because that idea of competitive individualism has created a situation with such corruption, with such greed, with such inequality, with no real understanding of how the body works and how to heal it, with ever more isolated situations. So we are becoming more and more and more isolated, not just from COVID, but before, but because of the way we've designed our lives now, that we're now getting to the point, as they put it, where we're eating our own children. We're in all kinds of crises. And so life is forcing us to that adaptation. And from Greg and my perspective, that is a really good thing. Yeah, yeah. you know, Lynn, we were talking about uh, resilience in general in the five domains, but now you're being specific about us and our world and where we are right now. And I think even, even those people that were skeptical that there was anything out of the ordinary happening uh, are no longer skeptical. Everybody knows that uh, 
that the world has changed. But the key is that, you know, there was a time we could have recognized this change was coming, not necessarily COVID, but we could have recognized all the things that you just, just mentioned. And we could have navigated uh, a healing that, uh, that would have served the world in a much gentler way. But humans don't seem to learn that way. We humans are very strange in that we, we appear to, to need to experience what we don't want before we know we don't want it. So, you know, we have a, a, a bad relationship and certain characteristics, and then we say, well, I don't want that. So, you know, we, we try to find a better relationship or, you know, we've done this, we had global war and we said, well, we don't want that. And then we had to have another global war to say, we really don't want that. So, so the, the point is that now we're in it. We're in the change. And the only way out of the change is to go through the change. And what the resilience helps us to do is personally uh, and for our families, our communities, our society, our nations, hopefully come in for a little bit of a gentler landing, uh, a softer landing as we come through this. And so now that we're talking about the, the, the world specifically, one of the most powerful things that any of us can do, and this is something people can do today, we as a society land have never been given the opportunity to mourn the passing of the world that no longer exists we cannot go back to what we knew in 2019 and before because it no longer exists so i i talk to people all the time that believe that you know we were going along the road of life and we hit this speed bump called COVID and lockdowns and and they're waiting for us to come down from the other side of that speed bump and go back to normal we can't do that. Economies have changed. Businesses have disappeared. People's lives have been turned upside down. We can't go back. So the key, and I'm going to invite our, our viewers and our listeners to, to consider this. There is a beautiful new world emerging of hope and possibility and innovation and creativity that we've never seen before. Here's the thing. If your psyche and if your emotions are filled with the images and the expectations of what used to be in the past, of what was comfortable and what we, we were used to, if you are filled with those images clinging to the idea of what should be, where is there room in your emotions, in your psyche to embrace the beautiful possibilities in your personal life and, and in our, our society? So when we talk about mourning, it doesn't have to be, <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> excuse me, it doesn't have to be a big, you know, visible display of, of mourning. It can be as simple as acknowledging to yourself and maybe saying out loud to those that are close to you, I miss the things that used to be in my world. I miss the little mom and pop shops that used to take care of me. Now everything's in a big box store. You know, Lynn, I... Uh, my family used to joke, I wear boots, and you know I wear boots because you've seen me for I don't know how many years we've known one another. My family says I was born in boots. It's not quite true, <clears throat> but I miss the opportunity. If I have my boots and I was out shopping one day and a heel falls off my boots, I used to be able to walk into little mom and pop shops that I've known for 20 years, and they would fix it for me in 10 minutes. That that is pretty much gone right now with rare exceptions that is pretty much gone I mean, it's maybe a silly example but the the little local businesses 
So when we simply acknowledge, we say to ourselves, I miss the freedoms that I had only recently, and I, I miss the localized way of, of living, the localized ways of, of doing business. That's the first step in any resilience because you open yourself then to the flexibility of new possibilities and the adaptation that we're gonna be talking about. So uh, that was not part of the course, but that is specific to where we are in our lives now. We all have lost, everyone has lost something. <clears throat> and the key to moving forward in a healthy way is to acknowledge and embrace that loss. Uh, and it begins with allowing ourselves to mourn, to acknowledge uh, what we have lost in our lives. So I just yeah. wanted to start with that, Len. Absolutely. I think that's so good. And <clears throat> funnily enough, I was just talking to my literary agent who is in New York um, yesterday, and he was telling me that he used to have a big office on Fifth Avenue, you know, big, lovely office there. And he said, well, it was literally gathering dust for two years. So they disbanded it and the whole team now work from home. And he said, well, I really miss just the human contact. We're always in contact. We use all of the technology now, but I really miss the human contact. And that is, and I've redesigned my work now. So I'm, I'm working now in coffee shops at you know, various places. And he's had to completely redesign his life. And of course, misses some of that. But here's the thing that we really want to impress on everybody out there. There is, there are beautiful daffodils coming up from the ground of this desert that we're talking about now. There is this opportunity we all have to do this better. And I was so struck by something you had, Greg, which was hope theory. And that's such an interesting theory because it is all about creating hope and how powerful that is as an agent of change and evolution. And when they talk about hope theory, and if, correct me if I'm wrong, Greg, but they talk about having goal-oriented thoughts. So this is very different from the kind of thinking we usually do. I mean, we have 70,000 thoughts a day, believe it or not. And when I work with people in my courses and I have them start looking at what they are inadvertently intending every day, pretty much 80% of that is negative. It's judgmental, you know, my bum looks too big in this, everything from that to I hate her hair, to I'm never gonna do this, to all of that sort of negative thinking. So imagine it now. And then the second part of hope theory is achieve, developing strategies to achieve your goals. And finally, being motivated to expend effort to achieve those goals. So this is one of the big transformers. And so to me, that definition is very, very similar to what my definition is of intention, simple intention, a focused thought that is, is repeated, is connected to a goal of some sort and is attached to a motivation to achieve that goal. And that, that thinking starts changing everything everything in the body, everything in the spirit to something positive. 
So instead of becoming a victim of what is happening in, in your life, you become the driver. Yeah, you know, Len, when, uh, when I offer this in our live events uh, and we, we do evaluations, people tell me often this is one of the highlights of an entire four or five day event of all the things we do, the, the conversation and the experience of, of hope theory. So I know for a lot of people, they say, what do you mean hope theory? You know, it's just theoretical hope or, you know, what, uh, because we typically equate hope with something akin to wishful thinking. You know, I, I hope it's not going to rain today, or I, I hope it's, you know, this, I hope this relationship is going to work out. So, you know, those are the way we typically think of hope. But I, I believe it was 1991 when uh, a psychologist, uh, a specific psychologist developed a, a way to quantify what we call hope. And he did it by breaking it down uh, into uh, actions and strategies. And he developed a template that we, that we use. This is what people like to do. It's a, it's a 12 question template where they ask very specific questions, but you have no idea of how those questions are, are going to be used. Because if you did know, your ego would put down just the right answer so that it makes you look good on, on the, the template. And uh, when it's all finished, what you find is of those 12 questions, four of them were just fillers. Four of them were not even useful. And four of them help you to know where you are uh, in terms of your actions and where you are in terms of your strategy. And the value for this, whether you're in a corporation or whether you're you know, developing your own personal, uh, you know, your personal goals in life, is often we are stronger. We might be stronger in uh in the the image of what we want uh and maybe weaker in the strategy or maybe we're strong in the strategies we've got all kinds of support systems and social media and and uh, a team that's willing to help us but we never were really clear on the goal of what it is that we really want to to achieve so somebody for example says i i, I want a better business i want a stronger business sounds cool but what does that really mean stronger in what way stronger in what area so you got a whole team working with you but they don't have clear direction because you never really identified the goals so so the the theory of hope theory helps us to quantify this and you know one of the most powerful examples lynn as i was researching this work both for the book and for uh, for the course i want to see how people have applied this in um in real life. And I think one of the most powerful examples, can I tell the story of Terry Anderson? Are you okay if I, Absolutely. If I share that? Absolutely, please do. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated with the study, the real-time study of how people successfully navigate difficult times. And one of the most extreme examples of this was Terry Anderson. Some of you probably have never heard of him. Some of you were born after this happened. Uh, this was in uh, 1980, I think it was 84, 85, somewhere right around there. I don't have it in front of me. But Terry Anderson was the Associated Press Bureau Chief in Beirut, Lebanon. Uh, and it was a very tense time in terms of political factions, and he was taken hostage. Uh, and it turned out to be the longest recorded uh, hostage situation, almost, I think it's 2,455 days, almost seven years that he was held hostage. And when he was released, he looked remarkably well. 
And uh, when he was released in the interviews uh, and family and friends and TV networks, they were saying, how come you look so good? You know, what, what kept, kept you going? How did you make it? I mean, can you imagine? I mean, seven years would be from now is uh, 2014. Think back to how much has happened in all of our lives since 2014. That's how much of his life was spent in captivity. And it, a lot of it wasn't uh, under pleasant conditions. We'll just say it that way. And what he said was he had a discipline. First of all, he, he believed that he would live. And that was important. He believed that he was of more value to the, the hostage takers alive than he would be if, if they took his life. And that in that belief, so, so that was his a fundamental belief. That was the optimism which was very important. And then he broke each day down into structured segments uh, that he called doing time. This, this is what he called it in, in his book. He said, I would do time every day. And each day he had very specific segments where he would walk a certain number of steps in his cell, or he would do certain exercises, or he would do prayer. Um, you know, he would do writings. And it was that discipline that kept him. So, so those were the, the strategies uh, and the actions that, that he actually put into place that very successfully helped him to, to navigate the most extreme hostage situation, one of the most extreme that we have on record. So, so it's more, I mean, it is a theory academically, but it works when we put it into practice. And, and this was one example of, of that practice. Absolutely, Greg, absolutely. And now was he the hostage that also had a, another buddy that was also taken? He uh, so Lynn, you're in journalism. Do you remember when this happened? Do you remember? Yeah, I uh, do. I do remember it. And yeah, um, I think he had a buddy, and those two had ways of communicating. They weren't even in the same cell. But I will put forward too that one of the things that probably kept him alive and thriving was knowing that there was somebody else there, and yeah. that is seems to be a key element that I want to talk about anyway, later in this, the whole idea of community and how powerful that is. But we're still just talking about thoughts and words and adaptation and adaptation is all about thoughts. You know, everything in life is neutral. It's not good, it's not bad. It's how we judge it so. And so I'm gonna recommend that one of the powerful ways of looking at adaptation is after that stage of mourning, looking at possibility. And what we're talking about, as I say, with, with hope theory, it looks to me like, you know, essentially an aspect of that is intention, the power of intention, creating that goal, making it goal-oriented, like Terry Anderson's day in his cell was still goal-oriented, creating that very specific intention I mean, one of the things that I teach in my master class and, and elsewhere is the power of thoughts that are specific because, you know, we usually think of an intention as I want to be rich or I want to, I want a new relationship or something like that. And I have found in, in my work on intention that that essentially never works. You know, what do you mean by rich? Most people don't really mean that they want to be rich in the sense of, I want more things, I want more money in the bank. What they really mean is, 
I want more time to be with my children, or I want to pursue a hobby, or I really want another job, you know, or I don't want to work anymore, anything like that. And they think I want to be rich is going to do it. But those people I think who are successfully adapting understand that their thoughts are things that essentially create their world and affect other things. And certainly we see this in so much evidence about medicine. I think it, the fascinating thing, one of the real great studies that demonstrates exactly what you're talking about, Greg, in terms of how we view life was a study done by a guy called Ted Kapchuk, who is from Harvard University, and he also does acupuncture. So he was doing this study and he put people into two groups who had carpal tunnel syndrome, all suffering from repetitive strain injury. And one group was, were given medicine, pills, and the other group were given um, acupuncture. And about a third of the group on both sides had terrible side effects and went to their bed and you know were really suffering. But the majority got better. Now here's the interesting part of it. The medicine that those people were given was just sugar pills. The medicine the others were given in terms of acupuncture was sham acupuncture. It had nothing to do with actual treatments. It was all about thoughts and words. It was all about their perception of something and notice the people that thought they were going to be harmed were harmed, even though they were being given a sugar pill or a sham piece, bit of acupuncture. People thought they were gonna get better, got better. So this really tells us something so important about the power of changing the way we perceive what is going on right now and looking at opportunity and looking at change as opportunity and an opportunity, as I say, to do it better. But it really starts with that sense of thoughts. You can feel you're in a cage, you can feel you're in a cell, or you can feel that you have a job to do that day and you do it. So I want us to start thinking about some of that, that whole idea of thinking in a totally different way. And I was really struck by something else that you go on about, which is spiritual re resilience, Greg. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Because I think that's so key. Sure. Well, I, I'm, I'm going to back up about a half a step uh, with regard to the thoughts, because what you're saying is, is so powerful. It's so true. And we hear it so seldom. Uh, the research I did in a recent book, I think you mentioned this, 60 to 80,000 thoughts in a 24-hour period, many of those thoughts are the same thought. They're repetitive thoughts that we're playing consciously and subconsciously. The question is, where do those thoughts come from? And often they come from the world around us and what we're being taught or what we're being exposed to when it comes to the world. And I think it's no secret to anyone watching this, there, there is um, uh, the ability for all kinds of media to influence those thoughts, whether it's social media or, you know, on YouTube or whether it's, you know, we can't call it mainstream media anymore, Lynn, because there are more viewers on many of the podcasts than there are on CNN or MSNBC or Fox News in, in a day. So we can now call it legacy media. 
So it's, I think it's no secret, legacy media, they have a perspective. Uh, and our friends will have a perspective and YouTube videos will have a perspective. And if that is what's driving our thoughts, then we have to ask ourselves, are they true? Are they healthy? Are they serving us? Um, when we turn all of that off, when we stop listening to the ideas and the thoughts of other people, and we base our perceptions on our own experience in the world, what's actually happening in your life? Uh, and, and how true is, is what you have been taught? And then we begin to develop, in, in my experience, much healthier thoughts. And I, I think the, the spiritual domain of resilience is a very important part of this because it's when people hear spiritual domain, a lot of times they think, oh, you mean communicating with your angels or, or having religion uh, of some kind. And, and that can be a part of it. But when it comes to resilience, the, the spiritual element of resilience is the meaning that we give to our lives. And this is one of the most powerful, one of the most fundamental uh, elements. Uh, they're all important, but this is one of the most powerful of the domains because when we get out of bed every morning, we need to feel that we have a purpose in life. One of the most, um, one of the most profound studies that I did, I, I have a lot of work uh, and it's in the books and the courses on longevity and the human potential to live uh, much longer than what we typically accept is, is an average human lifespan of you know, 80 to 100 years. And there are very well-documented cases of people living much longer than that. Uh, not so much in the US in the Guinness Book of World Records, but it happens in other countries. So when I was spending a lot of time in Tibet uh, leading groups, it was common for the monks and the nuns to, to live 120, 130 years and they had papers to show that. It, it wasn't just word of mouth. They, they would show us their, their papers. So one of the, I think, one of the oldest women on record uh, just passed. She was 132 when she passed. And when she was interviewed about why she believed that she had attained this longevity, she said, because of my family, they need me. She says, if I wasn't here, who would fix lunches for the kids before they go to school? Who would help them with their homework? Who would take care of all the chores while everybody else has left the house to go to work and go to school? Who would work in the garden to bring the food and who would prepare the food for the evening meal? So she had this tremendous sense that her life was important and that she was needed. And I think we, all, I know that we all need this in some degree. The key is, it has to come from within. We have to find, seek out and find for ourselves our own reason for living, our own purpose in life. And that can be a whole workshop unto itself. And it can change as we evolve and go through life. But it's not something that you can read in a book. It's not something you can get from a, a workshop can't tell you what your purpose is. A workshop can lead you through a process to help you arrive at that understanding for yourself. Uh, and what we do in the course and my programs and the books and things like that is we share the science of the discovery of neurons in the human heart that have their own neural network independent from the neural network in the brain. And I'm saying this because our brain is, uh, is a, a polarity organ, left brain, right brain. 
and if we try to solve problems by thinking about them too much, uh, or relationships, or jobs, or whatever we're doing, our brain will always polarize our experience into good and bad, and right and wrong, and success and failure, and worthy and not worthy, whereas the neural network in the heart is not a polarity, uh, the heart's not a polarity organ. So, so when we learn to access the wisdom of the heart, which is the core of our most ancient and cherished spiritual traditions. When we ask the big questions of life, what is my purpose in life? Uh, from the heart, we don't go through the ego loops of success and failure and worthy and not worthy. And we, we I, I believe my experience is that we have a truer uh, insight into what our life purpose, our life meaning is, and it's not, it's not an event, it's a process, it's ongoing. You could ask the next day and have a clearer answer. So when we learn to access the heart, I mean, simply touching the heart center to draw our awareness from our mind into our, our awareness will always go to the place in our body that we touch. So when you touch your heart center, your awareness is in your heart. And when you, when you take a few deep breaths, slow your breathing down and ask these questions from your heart, uh, I think this is key. And when we find that purpose, it changes our physiology. It changes the way our neurons wire and fire. We begin to develop new neural circuits of feeling needed, healthier body chemistry, uh, longevity enzymes are awakened, stronger immune response, greater resilience to life, all those things from this, this experience of, uh, of being needed. So we could go on and on about this, Lynn, but in essence, that is the spiritual uh, domain of, uh, of the, the resilience that we're talking about here. Absolutely. And one of the things that I've been exploring with and, and, and looked at in depth in finding your spiritual center and your purpose in life and we found that that's so important, but the way I've been exploring it is with Power of Eight groups, of course, and I've been doing that for, for many years now. And I was inspired by a study from Harvard showing that when they went to communities all across America, they asked people how much money would make you happy. And they assumed that people were going to say half a million, a million, that kind of thing. Nothing like that. What they said was enough money to pay my bills and a little bit extra. That was it. And actually the ceiling was $75,000. And, and for a lot of people, that is just about what they need to pay their bills, to get their kids through things and have a little bit extra. But that was it, not extravagant. What they did say though, what was most important Important to them was living a life of service. And one thing that I've noticed in my Power of Eight groups and Power of Eight courses that I give is the, um, the frequency with which people use that to find a life purpose. Many people come and they say, well, my kids are grown up, now what? Or I left that job, now what? or I wanna leave that soulless job, now what? And oftentimes the group works so well for several reasons. Number one, you talked about turning off the brain. 
And what we've found in studies we've done with power of eight groups is that's exactly what happens. This, the parts of the brain that make us feel separate, that make us, that create our individuality, our very individuality, they're dialed down. And what we find is people are in a state of ecstatic oneness. And I think that oneness, that getting off of yourself, that feeling that actually experience, experiencing your entity as part of something larger, as part of that quantum field, that, that thing that we never actually experience, we all know about, but we don't experience, people do in this group experience. And it oftentimes is a fast track to them finding their real purpose in life. I've also found, and I've experimented a lot with this, when people are undergoing a lot of negativity, their own or somebody else's, I will oftentimes say, hold on to that thing that you were born to do. And when people can find that, and as you say, Greg, that's not in here, that's not in your head, that comes out of deep intuition in your heart. And oftentimes, that being of service, that altruistic piece that I find in Power of Eight groups um, awakens that. I've had a couple of people in my current master class. Uh, one woman did an intention to find her purpose in life. And lo and behold, the group did an intention for her. And lo and behold, she came across this perfect charity that she got involved with that's helping refugees from Afghanistan. And her life is filled with purpose and meaning now. And I've seen this over and over again in times of trouble. I remember during Hurricane Sandy, a little local liquor store on the east side of Manhattan. You know, all the lights went out, all the power went out. It was cold, it was horrible. And they started creating emergency power and it became a hub of the neighborhood. People started showing up with you know, extra things. It became a place where you could power up your phone on this emergency power, et cetera, et cetera. And people were donating food. The restaurants were donating stuff. And it became a situation of a community that they never thought they had. And I think that's one other thing I want to address here, this whole, necessity and power of a small community. You know, we're sort of talking about resilience and the sort of qualities that we need to become a new human in this new time. Um, but we also need to start thinking about a new community too. And that community isn't going to be coming from the top down. It's certainly not going to be coming from our media. Um, I, I share with you, Greg, the thought that our, you know, legacy media is really responsible for putting us into a state of constant fear about COVID, about everything. And so many people I know have just decided, I'm not going to tune in anymore. It's just entering my body in a negative way. And I, as a journalist, um, have been, and an author, have been horrified at the way that the media has conducted itself through COVID. It has not asked the good, tough questions. It has just used it as a purient way of 
creating more fear and more, uh, more um, attendance. People having to watch the nightly news to find out the next calamity. So I wanted to start talking about new community. So what does this look like? For me, it looks so much like small groups. And that's certainly what I've seen, the power of it. This past year, we've had a woman who had detached retinas who was going blind. Her group did an intention for her. She has, <laughs> she has restored those retina. She's now, and then she then had to go on to a, a, get some cataract surgery. But her doctors before this said that wasn't gonna make much difference. She has, I swear to you, 2020 vision now. I mean, amazing. And I've seen the power of groups, small groups manifest, power up that spiritual sense, that heart sense, but also create a new intention family. So I wanna talk a little bit more, Greg, about this whole idea that we have to create, recreate those communities that we've lost. We've lost those corner shoemakers. You know, we've lost those mom pass shops. We've lost that sense of local community. So we have to create something new. What are some of your thoughts on that? Well, Lynn, <clears throat> excuse me, you, you just covered a lot of ground and uh, I'm happy that we're, we're talking about community. I, I think at, at the very least, it's fair to say we're living a time of extremes. Excuse me. And what the 5,000 years of recorded human history tells us is that the key to navigating a time of extremes in a healthy way is localized living. Localized living, which is just the opposite of what we're being encouraged to do right now. We're being encouraged to centralize into large population centers where we rely on external forms of support for the things that we need in life. And history shows just the opposite is, is what has served society uh, for 5,000 years in the past. So when I say localized, that means uh, localized economies, localized finance, localized sources of energy, localized sources of food. You know, many of our communities already have farm to table. So, uh, so we're familiar with that. Uh, and especially in time of extremes where we're seeing the breakdown of supply chains around the world, that's the result of centralized living and that's where people get hurt. And the ones that get hurt are typically those that can least, uh, have, have the least resilience because maybe they're living paycheck to paycheck. You know, or they've, they've got a little store where they don't have a big inventory and they rely on, on those supplies coming in. So localized living uh, is the key and it, it flies in the face of what we're being encouraged to do today. So what you're, when you talk about the legacy media and, uh, and the fear, I think I, I agree 100%. And I, I believe that COVID simply forced to the surface in a way that it's very hard to discount something that has actually been happening over a longer period of time. People didn't want to see it. And that is that information is being used to divide us, to divide and break social alliances. You know, when it comes 
to and, and the media feeding into this, you know, the media emphasizing the discrepancy between the 1% and the 99% or the differences between men and women or blacks and whites or Christians and Muslim. Not that those things don't exist. They do in our lives and, and we learn how to heal them. But when those differences become the focus hour after hour, day after day, and they, they resort, they go right to this primal instinct of fear that separates us what happens, Lynn, is we break the social alliances, uh, the healthy social alliances that, that come from community, and then we become much more vulnerable uh, as families and societies and nations to other people's ideas because our collective ideas have fallen apart. So this is something to be aware of, uh, not that the differences don't exist, but that we are more than those differences and that we ultimately i believe we may not always like each other but i know that we love one another and there are all kinds of studies showing how one human will risk their lives to save the life of another human at their own peril without even giving a, a heartbeat of a second thought because we're hardwired to do that because we we do have this love for one another so when it comes to the community uh one of the most powerful things that I read, Lynn, I came across a study recently about what a human needs to survive. And the, the number one, we are water-based beings. We can't live long without water, but we can actually go a couple of weeks without food as long as we have that water. Number two on the list was not food. It was community. We need social contact uh, to be healthy. And this was the problem with the lockdowns and the break, breaking of family alliances and friendships and community alliances in the sense of isolation and the isolation led to health problems uh you know level rise in levels of anxiety and depression certainly uh health issues the inflammation that comes from that leads to all you know cardiac issues and all kinds of skin irritation i mean you know the list goes on and on Suicides, uh, certainly we're all familiar with that, and childhood suicides, sadly, because community plays such a powerful role to an adolescent in their formative years as they're defining uh, who they are and their sense of, of who they are. So the bottom line, Len, community uh, is next to water. We need that more than anything. And it, it's nice to have physical community. It can be virtual community or it can be a combination of both. But localized living supports community. That's the whole point. When we live locally, the community has to come together for those sources of energy or those sources of commerce, uh, for uh, food. You know, I, I'm, I'm coming to you today from a, a studio just outside of Santa Fe, New Mexico. Just north of where I am, there's a, a small community. It's Española, New Mexico. And I, I just drove past there on Sunday. There is a, uh, right off the main road, there is there was a huge vacant lot commercial property pricey nobody wanted wanted to buy it and a bunch of people came together and went to the authorities in the community and they converted that vacant lot from commercial property to a community farm and people come after work they come on the weekends if they're not working during the day and they're growing food in that farm and that food goes to a farmer's market right there in the community. And it has brought people together that didn't used to know one another. 
and neighbors and friends and people that work in offices with people that work on tractors. And it, it has become a hub of the community and it's a beautiful example of localized living, localized production of food and the, and the community benefits from that. So, uh, so community is a powerful piece of our resilience to in a time of extremes. Absolutely, Greg. And I mean, that's certainly dear to my heart. Um, when I researched my book, The Bond, and I was, which was supposed to be an answer to Darwin, this whole idea that life has to proceed through struggle and competition. I wanted to know, were we hardwired to be competitive? And the resounding answer in my research was no. And as you say, I found that humans have several really important needs. And one of them is a need to belong. And as you say, other than water, we probably need that more than anything else. If you want to harm someone, what you do is ostracize them. That is one of that is reserved in indigenous cultures for the worst punishment of someone. Push them outside of the community, um, and or banish them. Even worse. And as you say, um, when they look at suicides, they find that or even heart disease, they find that they are typically, people kill themselves because they feel excessive individuation as psychologists put it. They feel left out. Um, and they also, uh, the, the opposite of that, if you're looking for healing to heart disease or a cause of heart disease, it's half of the time it is simple loneliness. So, as you say, one of the terrible things about COVID is, is um, accelerating the path of isolation that we were already on the root of. I mean, we have already started to create around the world gated communities where we're only with people just like us. Um, we have been more and more isolated via our technology and now we're isolated because of a pandemic in many, many instances, and even more isolated because of fear. So one thing that I have found is a wonderful antidote to all of this fear, all of this polarization is a power of eight group. And also intention on a large scale. I mean, one of the things that I'm, I've been experimenting with a lot with my intention experiments is bringing together polarized people. So for instance, with, the inauguration, uh, I had on a, a webinar participating in a, an intention experiment to heal any violence in Washington before the inauguration. We had on Republicans and Democrats, we had on police, we had on an African-American, a former jihadist, we had a load of different people on and people by the end were sending love to each other. And I've found this now, about, I've done about 10 of these, always putting together people who are supposed enemies to see what happens. And what has happened when we've tried to analyze what has gone on, we found the University of California evidence about what happens with the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve is the longest nerve in the body. It's involved in the production of oxytocin. It, helps to regulate the, the release of the hormone oxytocin. 
which is our love hormone. That essentially, what they've discovered in these studies is when we do something altruistic, when we do something of service, like an intention experiment, uh, we feel more love for everyone we come in contact with, in particular, the people who are not like us. So one of my antidotes to the individualism going on right now that's dangerous for all of us is small group intention, also bringing together people to do a little common intention, maybe for their neighborhood, maybe for you know, the larger community, um, and deliberately bringing together people not like you. Because I think being part of that larger thing, you know, the, the psychological word for it is a superordinate goal, a goal we can't achieve um, except by the participation of everyone involved, that creates a bridge across the divide in my view. But as you say, Greg, I think it's going to come down to moving away from this ever um, increasing globalization at the cost of local. Um, and I think local has to be a way of gaining back the humanity that we're being lost, but also allowing ourselves to move through these, these times of change. Yeah, Lynn, I love what you were saying, and I want to thank you for your work with the, with the intention groups, and uh, and I love what you were saying about the night of the inauguration and bringing together seemingly disparate uh, people representing seemingly disparate groups, and how when they were able to get to the true essence of themselves, they actually connected on, on a very deep level. And I know you've done this before uh, with nations entire nations and religious groups. And I've, I've often said in our, our live programs, you never know who's going to be in the audience. So I'm always hoping, at my hope theory, <laughs> hoping in the audience, at some point, what I would love to see is the leaders of our nations, maybe the G20 or the G10 or the G7, whatever it is, get together in a room when they're not behind their technology from their nations, they're not behind their armies. And just look at one another and talk about their families and what they want for their people. And I, I sense that they would have, I think they're so locked into an old way of thinking uh, that it would be a breakthrough for them to, to realize that they probably have much more in common than they have been led to believe in the past and that it's okay to break out of those old ways of, of thinking. You know, one of my, a man that I've just admired tremendously, unfortunately, I, I did not meet him personally before he died, but I'm, I'm good friends with people that did, that, that worked with him, is Buckminster Fuller. And one of the, I think, most powerful things that he said that applies to everything we're talking about today, he said, if, if, you, if you want change in the world, you're never going to create a better world by fighting against the things you don't like. He says, if you want a better world, find new ways to do things that are better than the old way and people will follow the new ways and the old ways become obsolete. And I think there's a lot of truth to that because I know even in, in our community, Lynn, we have colleagues that do not understand this principle. And so they fight against 
what they don't want rather than put their life energy and their heart and their focus into and toward uh, the new and the beautiful and the exciting things that are possible. Uh, I have friends in the military. I, I worked in the defense industry during the Cold War years, and I still have friends in the military. And I asked them once, I said, you know, what happens if the next time they have a war, nobody shows up? You know, mm -hmm. you can only have a war if people are going to fight. And they said, don't laugh. Don't laugh, because there are military leaders now who, when it comes to these very intense meetings and, and the proposition of war comes up, they say, we will not do it because war has become obsolete. There are no winners there. Everybody loses. The old idea of war was somebody wins, somebody loses. Everybody loses now. So the, the old ideas of war have become obsolete. And that is a step moving in the direction of, of working toward what we want in the world rather than fighting against what we don't want. I think it's true in relationships intimate relationships, family, community, and I think it's true for the planet as well. But we can only do that, in my experience, the, the better we know ourselves, the better equipped we are to deal with whatever life brings to our doorstep in a healthy way. Resilience helps us to become the best versions of ourselves so that we bring the strength of our best self forward to create the best world possible. And I, I think it's really, Lynn, what your work is all about, Certainly what gets me out of bed, it juices me to, to get out of bed every morning. That's part, part of my purpose. And, um, and I just want to thank you for the community that you have created. You are such a, I don't even know, I know that you know you are a hub. I don't know if you know how much and how powerful of a hub you are. World, uh, a bird. And I think on that note, I guess I I guess I was such a hub. I've frozen him for the moment. So hopefully we'll come back. And Greg, if you want to just turn your camera off and then back on again, I bet you'll come back. Um, while he's doing so, I just want to say that um, one thing that I have discovered, and just to sum up before we take some questions, is um, I have discovered that a new community can be formed. You know, if you don't have people around you who are like-minded in terms of trying to try out some of these new ideas we've been discussing. So this idea of, of um, resilience, this idea of adaptation, there we go. That wasn't supposed was, that that wasn't supposed to be the end, but we had an internet drop. So <laughs> I know, I know. I figured it's probably you know I was getting too much of a compliment here, and the internet said, uh-uh, 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 it's going to go to her head. <laughs> so yeah, we lost you. I think around there. <laughs> well, I'm 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 back, and I just wanted to say those things uh, before we get to the end of the program. Sometimes the program ends and. Oh. And I, you know, I walk away and I say, mm, I wish I had have, have said these things. So I wanted to get them in before. Oh, before thank you so much, Greg. And I was just saying, I'm going to have us take a few questions if you can spare the time. Um, I was just saying that one thing that I've found, because we're just to sum up, is we're talking about inner change. We're talking about inner adaptation looking at things a different way, but we're also talking about the power and the, the, the uh, resilience that a group can create. 
I've seen it. I have people over and over again tell me their power of eight group has become their intention family. And they feel incredibly close to these people. They have helped them make extraordinary change to heal their lives, whether it is their health, their relationships. I've seen thousands of cases of people um, healing estranged relationships or um, changing their career, finding their life purpose, getting their finances on an even keel, all of those things, thanks to Power of Eight groups. And I think in terms of using this as a new tool for a new community, it doesn't have to be local to work. Although I, like Greg, am really in favor of local. Um, it, but these virtual groups create family and particularly in these times of lockdown and inability to see people, having that community to count on, to have your back is just extraordinary. So in these times of transition, I really encourage you all to start looking at ways to bring these ideas about adaptation and resilience into your lives. Looking at lots of Greg's courses, all of his amazing stuff. He's sounds like a book is going to come out of this too, Greg. Well, we have a, a book uh, right now about uh, resilience from the heart. Talks about the the power of coherence. Uh, helping us with physiological resilience. There is a course, it's entitled Radical Resilience. It's on my website, it's the only place it's offered right now. So people can go to, uh, to see that. And there is a new book. Uh, I have a new book that will be due March 31st. So I'm actually in book writing mode right now. Okay, so we yeah. can't wait for that. And we'll yeah. certainly let everybody know about it when it comes out. And I am running my once a year course the Power of Eight Intention Masterclass. So if you want to go on a whole deep dive with me for a year long uh, course with your own Power of Eight group, it kicks off on February 5th. So check out in the chat um, where you can get hold of information about it and have a look further to get a Power of Eight group of your very own and also to go through what I like to call Intention boot camp. As you've heard, one of the simplest ways to live the new science is with a Power of Eight group of your very own. So if you'd like to learn to master intention by working directly with me, please join me and a select group of students on my once a year, year long intensive journey into the secrets of intention with my Power of Eight Intention Masterclass. It kicks off on February 5th of this year. During the whole of 2022, I will show you how to unleash the power you hold inside yourself to use both to heal and to improve every aspect of your life, including your health, your relationships, your finances or career, and even your life's true purpose. This course offers six live and interactive two-hour webinar sessions with me which include an advanced intention toolkit and ample opportunity to practice and improve your intention and psychic skills with other course members. I call it intention bootcamp. 
You also get a specially selected power of eight group of your own in your time zone to meet virtually at your preferred times. And finally, you also are offered live monthly intention clinics with me for feedback, challenges, and personal coaching to help you nail down your intention practice alone and in a group. But if you're interested in taking this journey with me, please don't delay. I only run this course once a year and it's already filling up. To find out more, go to my website, lynnmctaggart.com and click on the link at the top of the page, directing you to the Power of Eight Intention Masterclass 2022. This is Lynn McTaggart, helping you to live the new science. Thanks for listening. I look forward to connecting again.